At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. Eric Anderson is the founding partner of Proteus International, a coaching, consulting, and training firm that focuses on leader readiness. For over three decades, she served as a consultant and advisor to top executives at today's leading organizations, including Amazon, Spotify, Charter Spectrum, and the Yale School of Public Health. She's the author of four best-selling books, including Growing Great Employees and Be Bad First. She's a popular leadership blogger at Forbes.com and is the host of her own podcast, The Proteus Leader Show, which I highly recommend. It's a business and leadership podcast globally ranked in the top 10%. Her newest book is Change from the Inside Out, making you, your team, and your organization change capable. And that's the book that we'll be talking about a lot today. So thank you for being with us in this discussion, and join me in welcoming Erica to the show. All right, well, Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm just thrilled to be here. I think we're going to have a great conversation. Oh, I, I know we are. Based off of the, the pre-recording uh, conversation we had there, uh, audience, you are in for an absolute treat. And uh, on that note, I'm going to go ahead and get this conversation started and ask you the first question that, it, uh, you know, kind of the modified question now that I ask all of my guests. When you think of responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? I really, really like that question. And to me, and, and I have, you know, I've written various books about leadership, so obviously I've been thinking about this for many years, but if I really had to just distill it down to one thing, it's my belief is that responsible leaders consistently focus on the greater good. They think and act to 
provide the best outcomes for the largest numbers of people, for the business, for the people in the business, and even for the world, that responsible leaders take responsibility to behave in ways that will bring the greatest positive outcome to the largest number of people. Oh, I really like that. I mean, that that is that is a great answer. That is a really mm-hmm. great answer. And, and uh, you know, I'm kind of curious, as you mentioned, you know, you, you've been doing this. You've written a few great books. I mentioned in a few of those in the bio. Um, like what what happened, I guess you could say, through the course of your career to kind of get you to that point? Oh, man, you're going to keep asking these great questions, aren't you? Okay, so <laughs> so when I, I kind of, in my uh late 20s sort of stumbled into (laughs) management, leadership development um, when it was nascent. This is in the early 80s. And the idea of helping people get better at their work and also create the kinds of professional lives that they wanted to create for themselves was just, just, you know, it's like struck a bell inside me. It just deeply resonated. And so then I worked for a couple of wonderful companies who did organizational development, leadership management development. And then when I was in my mid to late-ish 30s, I decided I really wanted to start my own company. And and there were two reasons. One is at the time, I'm old enough so that, you know, I was a grown up and getting into middle age in the in the 80s and early 90s. And, and this was in the late 80s. And I don't know if, if how old you are Earl, or if you're old enough to remember this, but at the time, leadership and management and teaming and communication skills were called soft skills. Like mm-hmm. they didn't really matter, you know, they weren't right. the real hard skills. And it was clear to me that as everything flattened out and sped up and we got post-industrial, that those were really going to be the important skills. So in fact, when I started my company, Proteus, in 1990, our tagline was skills for mastering the future. Mm. So I really wanted to focus on those skills and help people get better at them. And then my second motivation was I really wanted to be what has now, many years later, come to be called a business partner. I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't want to just be a a learning widget vendor, you know, I really wanted to collaborate with my clients and help them figure out um, how to, how to create the future that they wanted to create for themselves. In fact, that's the mission of Proteus and has been for the last 31 years is we, we say we help people clarify and move toward their hope for future. And we help leaders be ready. You know, we focus on leader readiness. We help leaders be ready for that future. So that's a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I love it. And and I love some of the things that you mentioned there, especially, you know, that kind of, that era of, of kind of, you know, command and control and, and yeah. more about production. And, you know, what's interesting to me is, is you know, this is one of the reasons why I love bringing uh, history and, and historical perspectives to the conversation is, you know, that really was kind of like a very short period of American history, if you will, kind of, you know, a lot of people say the Peter Drucker era, but, you know, he had some of the human side to it as well, if you really read what he wrote. Yes. But, you know, when you go all the way back, and and, and I, I still, you know, talking about the 80s, right, I still like going back to uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War. And, mm. you know, a lot of things were taken from, from that book and used, but the one thing that they miss is there's a... Uh, uh, there's one of the passages that says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it says, uh, success relies on three things, the heaven, the earth, and the people. Mm. And, and, and like, 
you know, so the, these people elements, these quote soft skills, as you, t- as you talk about, they've been around in leadership since we started forming tribes. And, yes. You know. Yes. So, so it's how do you think we lost that connection there for a little bit? Well, I'm I like you, I'm a student of history, and I have more hypotheses than you could shake a stick at. But one of my hypotheses is that we and it happens over and over again in human history where we get kind of um, seduced, I think of it as being seduced by clockwork. We like when the you know when in the it was in the 40s and 50s and and there was a whole it happened in the 19th century too. But these um, they were called efficiency experts, mm-hmm. and they would bring these people into corporations, and they were entirely focused on the kind of nuts and bolts stuff, and not people and people's reactions and how what people need and so I feel like we've we've gone through waves of being seduced by that that like yes we just have to get efficient and and the people don't really matter you know and then because people do matter (laughs) that turns out not to work and so we gradually come you know claw our way back from that and go oh sorry people actually do matter okay Well, no, and I like that because I like that response because that's a great segue kind of into what we're going to talk about here, which is your new book, uh, Mm. Change from the Inside Out, Making Your Team and Your Organization Change Capable. And and one of the things I love about this book, and and this is a quote that I heard three, four, five years ago. It was unattributed back then, and I don't know, maybe you know who said it, but uh, it says, change is changing faster than change has ever changed before. And what struck me when I was reading your book is your chapter one is how change has changed. So how has change changed? Well, exactly as that quote says, I start out talking about how when I was a little kid, my family got a television. And then 10 years later, basically, the next big improvement, the next big innovation in television became popular, which was color TV. And that was the kind of stately... Uh, pace of change in the 50s and 60s and then it started to speed up and and if you look back if I just started then kind of arbitrarily because that's when I was born but if you look back even beyond that like at the turn of the 20th century most people's lives were pretty much the same their whole life you know a, a son generally speaking, did what his father had done. People grew up where their parents had grown up. If people went to school, they went to school where their siblings and their parents, you know, people's lives were pretty much the same. And then even when I was born, you know, almost 70 years ago, it was still pretty unfolded in a pretty stately way. You know, one of the, one of the examples I give in the book is when I was a kid, my parents bought a set of world book encyclopedias, which are the internet of the 60s and 70s and um every year they'd send this yearly update which was this slim little volume one volume of the important things that had happened in that year if you can imagine and so you know then it started to speed up and now change is happening unimaginably Really, and I, I use that word advisedly, unimaginably faster than it was 50 years ago. And what the kind of change that's from black and white to color TV, which we had a decade, a decade to get our arms around, happens 
you know, with our phones and with the technological platforms that we use with our computers on a daily basis. And even organizational change. Like I remember, you know, 35, 40 years ago when I was first starting to do this kind of work, uh, a reorganization meant that you were going to pick the organization up, shake it, <laughs> and set it back down again. And then that was going to be it for a few years. And now... I mean, I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know, but it's we, we kind of lose sight of how this it hasn't always been this way. Now, in an organization, at any organization, there are changes, large and small, happening every day, and it's just been ramped up dramatically by the pandemic. So that that's how change has changed. It's just um, relentless and constant and happening at a pace that it's never happened before, I don't think, in the world. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and, and I, I like that because you're right. I mean, you know, organizations can't afford anymore to, like you said, go through a reorganization and be happy for two, three, four years before they think yeah. again. You know, because somebody, I mean, you mentioned the pandemic, but, you know, just with the Internet and, and the ease of access to starting a business now, yes. if you wait that two or three, four years, there's going to be 20 people ahead of you already. Exactly. And there's, and the changes are all, um, you know, it used to be one and done kind of, and now not only do they happen all the time, but they're all interlaced. Like you, you make a, you go to make a change in your organization. Let's say you decide to use a different CRM, different customer relationship management tool. And so you do that change well, hopefully, and we'll talk more about what that means. And even while you're doing it, you realize there are unintended consequences and things you haven't thought about and secondary changes that arise. And you have to attend to those well, too. You can't just kind of go, oh, well, I'm not going to pay any attention to those changes that arose from this change because I'm only going to pay attention to this initial change. You just can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it, that's an excellent point. An excellent point. Um, you know, so I'm going to jump ahead here a little bit because I like to leave listeners with, you know, kind of, uh, enough to where they want to go out and buy the book, but not so much to where they don't need to go out and buy the book. Yeah. Uh, uh cause you know, I folks, love that you, approach. <laughs> I mean, folks, you need to go grab a copy of this book. Cause I mean, as, as Eric has already said so well, like with everything that's going on pandemic, the great resignation, uh, what did I, I heard the new term for it, the, the great work quake. Um, mm. but, uh, you know, with all this going on, change is important and, and how you manage it is, is probably the most important piece of change. And yeah. Erica unveils in this book, um, in chapter five, uh, the five step change model. And what I love about it is your step one. And I think this is where most organizations really mess up their change process is they do a good job of talking about the need for change, but yours says clarifying the change and why it's needed. Why it's needed, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, maybe you added that there because you saw the same things I did. Most organizations forget the why part. Totally forget the why. And if they do it, they do a why that's not relevant to people. So let me, if I can, I want to get underneath that a little bit before we go to the five-step model. Is, Is that okay? Oh, 100%. Okay. So when I wrote this book, we, we had had this five-step model and had been using it in our change practice for almost a decade. 
And when I write books, I'm, I always have some codes I want to crack. I want to get down underneath some stuff. So what I wanted to get underneath in this book is why is it why is change so hard for us? <laughs> A. And B, what happens when an individual human being goes through a change? What actually happens psychologically and emotionally? Because I felt like if I had good answers to those questions, it would really help people to rewire themselves to become more change capable in this era when we need to. So when I started thinking about why is change so hard for us, I started thinking what I was talking about earlier, how how much less change there was historically. And I kind of uh, stumbled on this word in this context. I'd known the word, but I didn't really understand in this context, homeostasis which means basically an urge to come back to stable conditions. So we're most familiar with this physiologically. So if we're too cold, we want to put on a coat because there's a range of comfort, right, that we want to be at in our physical bodies. If we're hungry, we eat. If we're hot, we want to get in the air conditioning. So we all know how that homeostasis works physiologically. But what I realized is that for most of our history, that homeostatic urge has also been largely helpful and positive in a lot of other realms. So if you're living 100 years ago and your life is just going on being the same every day, change is going to be primarily a danger. Change is going to mean there's a famine or there's a war or there's a terrible storm or there's a plague. And and that urge to come back to the known, to come back to stable conditions is a self-protective urge. So I started to realize that for most of our history, that strong urge, that anti-change urge, if you will, to come back to the known has really protected us. And now because the world has changed so much and change has become the norm rather than an, an occasional danger or threat, that it just doesn't serve us as well anymore. I mean, there are some instances when it does, you know, if you're too high, you should take off your code. But uh, organizationally, economically, politically, sociologically, we have to rewire ourselves so that we're, so that our automatic response is not, ooh, change, it's bad. We got to go back to what we knew before. I feel like that's really getting in our way, you know? So then I went on to, does that make sense? No, it, it absolutely does. And, you know, listeners have, have actually probably kind of heard this a little bit uh, already and, and are probably nodding their heads north and south in agreement because, um, do, do you know the name Anthony Casablanca? No. Okay. I, I'm going to have to connect you to because what you just said there, I think there's a lot of, uh, we'll go back to the, the 80s there, there's a lot of uh, synergy between <laughs> what you two are doing because uh, he talks about oh, grief. He talks about grief in change, right? And he comes to kind of the same conclusion is what what really gets people in change when it's going is is the grief that it causes. You know, uh, no matter what it is, it's essentially like a piece of what you knew to be normal is dying, whether it's a, a new location or whatever, right? Yes. And there's another guy, William Bridges, who also did a lot of work in this, that there, the change is an ending for people. Mm-hmm. So... So, so I've definitely looked at that work and incorporated that, and I completely agree with that that approach. I I think it's more it's often more fear than grief, because it has because it feels dangerous, but certainly those negative emotions. So then I I thought, okay, well, so what actually happens? Let's observe. Let's gather some data. Let's talk to a bunch of people. Let's find out. 
And we came to what we've come to call the change arc, which you know from having read the book. And it's the, the kind of psychological and emotional arc that people go through in order to make a change. And I, I love this because it holds. It's simple and predictable and pretty powerful. So, and I'll bounce it off you and your listeners so you can tell me if you agree. So the, the first uh, aspect of this change arc is what we call proposed change. It turns out that when a change comes at us, there are three really predictable things we want to know. And this goes back to something you said before, Earl. We want to know what what is this but not just what is it in general. What is it for me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is this change going to mean for me? Why is it happening? And what will it look like when it's done? And that what will it look like when it's done? What is the post-change future? And I, you know, you're right about organizations not doing a good job with why, but they also do, generally speaking, a terrible job in what is it going to look like when it's done. And that's so important because one of the pieces of research I did when I was writing the book, it turns out that there are more and more um, neuropsychologists who believe that fear of the unknown is our deepest fear. Mm-hmm. And that really goes along with this homeostatic thing. Let's go back to the known, right? So if you're telling people to change, but the future is just this blur and you, and you don't really outline for them some of the things that will mean to make this change, you know, ugh. Yeah. so as we're starting to gather, try and gather this information, what is this? What does this mean to me? Why is it happening? What will it look like? Because I think of this historical urge toward homeostasis, our initial mindset about any change that we're hearing about tends to be that it's going to be difficult and costly and weird. (laughs) And difficult means I don't know how to do it and other people are going to get in the way of me doing it. This is just going to be hard. This is going to be a big hill to climb. Um, Costly means it's going to take away things I value. And that's where the grief comes in. And it's not just that making this change is going to cost me time and money. It's going to cost me reputation and identity and relationships and power. It's going to take away these intrinsic things that I value. And then weird just means strange. (laughs) You know, this is not how we do things around here, right? So then as I understood this, I also noticed and observed that when people did make a change, it was because they changed their mindset And they started to see how the change, that same change that they were thinking was going to be difficult, costly, and weird, could be easy, or at least doable, rewarding, and normal. And normal in this sense means people like me are doing this or are open to doing it, and people I admire and want to emulate do it, which is why it's so important for leaders to model change, right? But what I noticed is that when people made that in interior shift and their mindset changed about the change itself, then and only then were they willing and able to think about the new behaviors, to learn how to do them, to to adopt the change in effect. So I got very excited. And as you know, that change arc kind of underlies our whole change model. You're What you're really trying to do in the change model is as you go through the nuts and bolts aspects of the change, which are very important, you are also cascading everybody in the organization ultimately through that change arc and getting a critical mass so that the change can actually be adopted. Yeah. No, I love that. And and it all makes so much sense. And, and you know, it's it's one of those things where, 
you know, like when, when, when you so masterfully explained it the way you did, uh, it, it leaves people sitting back wondering, well, why, why do businesses mess this part up so much? Mm, and yeah. So, and I want to add another kind of question to that there too, because maybe I don't know if you got a good answer for that one, but when I do, <laughs> when well, so maybe the second part will help too. When um, when they do do a decent job at it, the one thing that I have noticed is that when they do answer those questions, they do it just specifically for the employee. And they don't take into account the fact that, you know, that they've got kids, they got kids in school, that they belong to this club, they belong to that club. And, and sometimes these changes are not just going to disrupt work life, but they're going to disrupt and, and completely change the family life. And that adds a whole nother layer to all of those things, right? Thousand percent. So, so let me, <clears throat> let me take a pass at both those questions. So I'm, I've come to believe that the reason that, um, organizations don't do this well is that they just consistently underestimate and underrepresent exactly what you're talking about, the human impact of change, not only on the employees, but on all the people in their sphere and network. And in fact, I've, over the years, I've had CEOs say some just astonishing things to me. I remember, and I talk about this example in the book, years ago, um, one of our client companies was acquiring, merging with, but actually acquiring another company. And, and I was sitting talking to the CEO and they had it all planned out down to the, you know, they'd done their due diligence. Here's the targeted yield financially. And they had it all. We're going to do the A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And, uh, <clears throat> and I said to him, well, what are you doing to help the people, your folks through this? And he said, and this is a quote, I am not making this up. Oh, they're great. They'll get with the program. <laughs> that was his response to how he was going to help his people through the, and, and, and I said, what do you mean? There, this is going to be a lot. Most, there's a different structure and there's suddenly going to be all these new people and lots of them are going to be reporting to different folks and your culture is very different from the company, the acquiring, you know, acquired company. And no, no, they're okay. It's not that big of a deal, he said. And as you might expect, <laughs> he was dead wrong. And and not only did they lose a lot of their best people, who are always the people that have the most options, but they it took them three years instead of one to reap the benefits of this acquisition that they expected. So I think people just don't think it's a big deal. And they're just dead wrong, you know? Yeah. No, 100%. And, and that's the thing. Like, you know, um, I had somebody, and this was many years ago, we're having the the kind of the discussion about, you know, you know, it always kills me when I hear an organization say that their employees are their biggest asset. And then the first thing they want to cut are the employees. Precisely. And they want to pretend like they're, you know, cogs in a machine. It just, no, they're human beings. And as I said at the very beginning, you ignore them at your peril. And the second question you asked to go, to go back to that about how, you know, every person lives within a sphere of influence. So, as, as you know, because you've read the book, step four of the book is called lead the trend I mean, of the model is called lead the transition. And so step one is clarify the change, why it's needed, 
step two is envision the future, the future state, which, you know, as I said, those are the three questions that people first want answered when they come to it. And then step three is you really start to build the plan. You, you create a change coalition or change team. You figure out who the key stakeholders are that aren't on the change team and you build the actual nuts and bolts plan. And most people, if they even do those things, that's as far as they go. But step four is critical. Step four is where you figure out who is going to be most affected by this change in the organization. Because some people will only be, you know, modestly affected by most changes. And some people will be deeply affected because it's right in the middle of what they're trying to do, you know. So who's going to be most affected? And then how do you figure out? what those endings and beginnings are for those people. What are the impacts going to be? And the only way you can figure that out is by talking to them. You can't just have a bunch of senior people sit in a room someplace and speculate. Those people, as as you said, with their families and their schedules and their constraints and their hopes, you need to talk to those people about the impact that the change is going to have on them. And then you build a transition plan. You build a plan specifically to help them move through their grief and fear, move through their own change arc, and understand how the change could be easy, rewarding, and normal. The benefits for them, you make it easy by giving them the support and the tools and the skills and the listening that they need. So you make a plan not only for just implementing the change, but for helping people through the change. And then, you know, it's much more likely to be successful. And then when you get to step five, which is keep the change going, then you can keep the change going. And you have these networks of communication where you can stay in touch with people and say, how's it going? What do we need to do differently? Are there unintended consequences? Are there secondary changes we have to think about? So it becomes a a much more, as it should, as it needs to be, a much more collaborative effort. People feel much less disempowered and victimized by the change and therefore are much more likely to adopt it and benefit from it. Yeah. No, and I love that. I mean, because that's the thing that I I don't, and I I don't know how other than, you know, doing what we're doing right now uh, to, to get leaders that are going through this process to really grasp that piece of it right because it yes. may sound you know like oh well you know that's their family they they deal with it right that's their responsibility and and there's some truth to that right but when you take the time as a leader to really think about that level with the people who work for you that is just the easiest best most valuable way to build trust and buy-in and change right oh that's exactly right and it's you know One of the things I love about the younger generations at work now, the millennials and the Gen Z, the people in their 20s and 30s, and now even early 40s, I had somebody in a session a couple weeks ago came up to me and she said, I am the oldest living millennial. I'm 41 years old. So now, you know, they're getting to be middle and upper managers. I mean, this these are younger people, but they're now this, they're, they're all coming up and the millennials are the largest generation in the workforce now. And they want to bring their whole selves to work. I mean, 40 years ago, everybody, or at least I and most of my compatriots figured we were just going to put most of our lives in a box by the door when we came to work and just be kind of our work selves. And people in their 20s and 30s aren't willing to do that. They want to bring their whole selves. And the the benefit of that is that you, as the employer, 
get their whole self. You get all their creativity and all their passion and all their productivity if if you allow them to be their whole selves. And the downside is they're complicated human beings and then you have to think about their whole selves. But if you do that and if you do that in collaboration with them, then exactly what you just said happens. They they are they'll they're change capable and they'll help you create a company that will be able to thrive through this era of nonstop change. Yeah. No, and I love it. And this is one of my favorite myths about military leadership to kind of bust down is, you know, that this, this piece, you know, this is, this is that, that leadership with love aspect. Mm. And, you know, I had, you know, one of my, uh, one of my leaders in the Marines, you know, he, he broke it down for us one day. He's like, look, he goes, if you ever go and read the, the citations for Medal of uh, Honor recipients, you know, like a vast majority of them are uh, so-and-so uh, laid their body down on, on a grenade and absorbed the blow so their mm. teammates didn't have to, right? And mm. he said, you don't do that for somebody that you don't care about. You don't do that mm. for somebody that you don't love. Yeah. And that's kind of what we're talking about here, right, is is building that level of, of relationship with your people. So when when this thing happens, everybody is looking out for everybody and everybody wants to make the change a success, right? Yeah, that's exactly right, Earl. And as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking of something that I often say to people is one of the, you know, there's this famous statistic that everybody knows from McKinsey that 70% of organization change, organizational change efforts fail. And, and, and they mean by that fail to achieve their targeted results in the time. So they don't, it's not like completely fail, but partly, at least partly fail. And, and they, and they've said that their research shows that the main reasons are lack of employee buy-in and lack of management support. So employees aren't buying in because managers aren't supporting it. You know, managers don't understand these things that we're saying. And, and so one of the things that I often say is it's kind of like when it comes to change, it's kind of like what they tell you on, on uh, airplanes when the oxygen masks come down, you know, put on your own mask before attempting to help others. Yep. And uh, this, this is really true of change. If you as a leader haven't started to figure out how to rewire yourself to be more change capable, to be more open to good necessary change in these ways that we're talking about, there is no way that you're going to be able to help your people do it. Because, you know, when I was talking before about um, you have to see a change as potentially normal before you'll make it, and a big part of normal is people look to see if their leaders are actually doing it. And so if you're wanting your people to make a change and they look to you and you're not making the change, you're digging your heels in and talking about how hard it's going to be and how it's just something from upstairs, they're not going to do it. They're waiting to see if it's normal. <laughs> and yeah. if you're not doing it, it's not normal, right? Yeah, 100%. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, not only is it not normal, but it's, it's you know, it's hypocritical. Uh, yes, <laughs> you know, yes. Um, and people, people attend to that. I mean, one of the things that I think leaders don't recognize nearly enough is that when part of being a leader is everything you say, there's a megaphone, everything you do, there's a microscope. People are looking and listening on a moment-to-moment -moment basis to see if you're actually going to do stuff. Yeah. And they're not going to do it if you're not doing it. 
A hundred percent. And that's one of the reasons like with the, the shields of the phalanx uh, that, that I talk about those shields, the first one is you are always on display. And, yeah. and I like to stress to folks that that means always, not just when you're at work. We talk about those community things. You live yeah. in those same communities. Yes. When, when your people see you driving into work and you're filled with road rage and flipping people off, but then yeah. you come in and you start talking about, hey, I want a cordial environment where everybody gets along. Those two worlds don't mash. You're not 100%. putting that on that's display. A, that's a great example. That is, that's a great example. And so that's why, you know, as you said, the subtitle of the book is making you, your team, and your organization change capable. It really has to start with you. And, and, it, and it requires some real introspection because I'm, I, even pe- change is hard to some extent for all of us. Even sometimes I talk to people who are like, oh, no, I love change. And when I talk to them more, it's like, yeah, they love change if it's their idea and if they're in control of it, you know. But almost none of us like change that's imposed on us. We really have to change our thinking about change to become more neutral and open so that we can make changes more easily and so that we can help those we lead make changes more easily. I see. And again, that's what I love about this is because, you know, what you just said, the introspection and improvement, that's actually the second shield that we teach is introspection and improvement. Mm, there uh, you go. I love it. Great minds. Uh, I know. right? <laughs> and, but, but it goes back to, you know, and, and I love it because it is perfectly right. And that's what I say is like, you know, these things are things that we know intuitively. Yeah. They, they yeah. were how we started forming tribes. They were how yeah. our ancestors picked who was going to be the leader who was going to be the big caveman absolutely we know these things but we always act like they're just these nice strange discoveries that we're making right (laughs) well and i to go back to i mean you said this a number of times now i really agree with you and to go back to what we said before i i feel like we you know so human beings are amazing and we have so many ways to um, understand and, and figure out and improve. And uh, especially lately, I feel like we often under uh, underestimate the power of empiricism. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're talking about, okay, we've observed these things for hundreds and thousands of years, how I figured out about homeostasis, how you figured out about the phalanx of shields, how one, one, another book that I wrote, Leading So People Will Follow, I looked into fairy tales to, to look at timeless elements of leadership. You know, the, the, so many fairy tales, there's a kid who starts out at the beginning and he's the youngest kid and sitting by the fire in rags and nobody pays any attention to him. And he goes through all these various trials and tribulations and ultimately kills the monster and saves the princess and we all live happily ever after. And those kinds of uh, stories exist in every culture, it turns out. And as I, as I dug into them, it turns out that those stories come back again and again to these six qualities that this kid 
always has to develop and then demonstrate on his way to being the king or he won't be a good king and we won't live happily ever after. And these are empirical. These are things that we've seen again and again over thousands of years, which is why we try and pass them on to each other. And then we kind of forget about them. We do a theory of the week and go, oh, that's how it works. Well, no, it's not supported by our human experience. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't work right. And we get, again, as I said before, kind of seduced by these theories. But um, I'm totally with you when we come back to, okay, what is how do human beings actually operate? <laughs> yeah. And how, what do we need to attend to, to, to make them whole and to make them, to help them be happy, you know? Yeah, no, I love it. Well, and, and kind of uh, coming back to a great conversation, but I want to kind of come back and, and to that step five of, of the change model, yeah. the, the keep change going. Now, why yeah. is that such an important step? Man, love these questions. Because even if you uh, unpack change well and help people through it, it's not, it can, it can slip back. And adoption is really key. You have to institutionalize it. It has to become just part of how you operate. And so you can't just, you know, a lot of times organizations, they make a change. Okay, we're done. On to the next. You have to keep some attention toward it so that you can monitor progress, not only to make sure that the change is having the impacts that you want it to have, but so that you can see those secondary changes and unintended consequences and keep tweaking. And at the same time, it's a great opportunity to make the organization itself more change capable. Because what we've seen is whenever you do any big change, you notice, you're going to notice things in the organization itself that are change impediments, not just to this change, but to any change. You're going to notice systems or processes or structures or your culture. And you're going to notice things about those things that get in the way of any change. So this is an opportunity to shift those, not only to make sure that this change that you've just done is successful, but so that future changes will be successful as well. And I'll give you a really practical example. A, a, a client of ours um, was did a big change. They're a they're an online retailer and they uh, they did a big change in kind of their go-to-market strategy. I can go into a lot of depth, but won't. But one of the things they realized was that their inventory system was kind of ad hoc and it was, it made it very hard to, to see what, what customers were buying and then to change. And they realized that this kind of ad hoc, almost handmade, not really technology supported approach to inventory management was not only getting in the way of this change, but was clearly going to get in the way of future changes and their business just moving faster. And so they, they found that in the course of this change, but they fixed it. They got a much better cloud-based inventory management system that worked not only to support this change, but won't get in the way of future changes, right? Yeah. And again, I like that. I, I So what I love about this conversation, and I'm sure, you know, you probably uh, hear this a lot and, and hear it referenced a lot, but what I love so far about this conversation is, is, you know, I keep going back to the Toyota production system in my mind, right? And, and a lot of those things that, that uh, Toyota uh, kind of identified and, and especially this last piece to keep the change going, right? That ties in always yes. looking for ways to improve because it's a lot easier 
to shave off, you know, a tenth of a second here or, or a hundredth of a second there than it is to really sit down and say, hey, uh, we're lagging behind. Now we got to find 10 minutes to shave. Yeah. And, and if you keep that going, you're always, you know, we're talking about change changing faster than change has ever changed before. Yes. It, it Like you said, and I think this is a word you used, it normalizes it and it gets people comfortable with change. Yes, right? it, it normalizes it. And, and I also, I love the concept of Kaizen and I feel like we, my business partner Laird and I have talked about this. We need to take Kaizen one step deeper because you can do Kaizen on a kind of almost superficial incremental level. As you say, let's shave a tenth of a second off, but you can do it on a more underlying way what I was talking about before of systems and processes and not just you know maybe take one step out of this process to change you know shave off a little time but can we really look at how to improve the process itself maybe uh, the technology that we're using really is going to get in the way of ever shaving more than two tenths of a second off, you know, mm -hmm. or maybe the way that people are thinking about this process or the way that this process is disconnected from other processes. So just to go one, I love Kaizen that goes one step down into it so that it thinks not only about how to make this process a little better or a little slicker, but how to make this process or this system or this structure less of a change impediment to really come at it with that idea. Does that make sense? No, it, it absolutely does. One of my guests many, many episodes ago was a gentleman named Mark Deluzio. And, and, and he would agree with you because uh, he learned from, from the masters, the Toyota production. But, you know, we were talking about this, and, and I'm sure you've heard this story. It's like, uh, you know, there was the assembly line, and, and, you know, they had the screwdriver that the person would pick up and screw the part in, and then they would set the screwdriver down. And then, then, then they decided, oh, hey, Kaizen, let's attach it to a bungee cord, and then that way it's always there. But then it would wiggle around, and somebody said, well, hey, attach a second bungee cord. And, now this, and so they were shaving off these times, and then, it, you know, he and I hadn't heard this piece before. He goes, "Do you ever notice that the story stops there?" And I said, "Well, yeah." He goes, "It's not that it really doesn't stop there." He goes, "Have you ever, uh, have, have you ever put a computer together?" And I have. I'm a, kind of a, a nerd like that. He goes, "You notice how those pieces now have uh, spring clips, so you don't need a screw at all." And I said, "Well, yeah." He goes, "That was the next step." Yes. In the Kaizen process, they took the yeah. screw out of it completely, and now you just press a screw in or press the the pressure clip in and you don't need a screw that that's exactly that's exactly what i'm talking about that's such a great story i didn't know that story and i love it and that is exactly what i'm talking about people people stop too soon and and i back to grief and fear i think the reason they do is because ooh, but that's a real change putting a bungee cord on the screwdriver that's only that's a slight modification Getting rid of the screwdriver altogether, putting a spring clip in, oh, that's difficult, costly, and weird, you know? Right. So to do real Kaizen, we have to be willing to confront our hesitation to change. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Um, you know, and, and what I like, and you've used this term uh, a couple of times already before, but becoming change capable. Like yeah. when you use that term change capable, what does that really mean to you? I you know, again, love this question. So it means to me, understanding change and being able to move yourself through that change arc much more quickly. So like I, I've been working on this myself for years, right? And I notice even now when a change comes at me, 
I, I hear myself talk, you know, that voice in my head that tells me, oh, this is going to be difficult and costly and weird, you know, that's my, but I can get past that really quickly because I know that that's just a, it's like a historical remainder. It's a leftover of my homeostatic urge, you know, it's my, my old brain and I can go, no, wait a minute. So what, so this seems like it's a necessary change. It seems like it's going to happen. So how could it be easy, rewarding, normal? So change capability is that ability to move through your own change arc more quickly, get less hung up in that first part so that you can move to understanding, acceptance, adoption. And then the next kind of order of magnitude of change capability is that you can help other people do that too. Mm. No, and that's the, that is probably the most important piece with anything right there is, is moving from the, the, the student to the teacher and passing these yeah. skills on, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love and it. And I love, I, I love working with leaders, with clients who you can tell when it's into their wiring because you overhear conversations where someone, you know, they're explaining a change to someone and the person's first reaction is that normal human reaction like oh i don't know that seems like it's going to be hard and that's not the way we do things around here and their first now now their first impulse is it, impulse is not to talk them out of it or reassurance give them reassurance their first impulse is to listen is mm. just to listen and take it in and accept that that's their initial legitimate response listen all the way through and then go okay yeah I can see how this is challenging. Now, how could we make it easier? And what would be rewarding about it? And what can we do to normalize it? You know, they know they know how to help people through that curve. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Uh, listeners, again, uh, we've been with Erica Anderson, uh, author of Change from the Inside Out, Making You, Your Team, and Your Organization Change Capable. And Erica... If you can believe it, we've been sitting here, we're coming up on a little over 45 minutes of, of discussion oh time here. It has been amazing. Uh, <laughs> I love I love everything we've talked about here. Uh, but I'm just curious, even though we've covered a lot of topics, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover that you really want to leave listeners with before we close out? I, I think the most important thing that I would love to have your listeners really think about and take away is that we can change the way we think about change, that we have the power to do that, that we're not, we don't have to be disempowered and victimized, that you can change the way you talk to yourself about change. You can rewire yourself. That, that is a hugely empowering thing to recognize. Mm, I love it. And, and I'll just add to this and maybe you, maybe you'll disagree, but I don't even think it's a, you, you can, I think it's a, you must, right? Yeah. Yes, and I completely agree. And it's when sometimes sometimes people tell you you must do something, it's essential, and you think, oh my gosh, but can I? So I just want to reassure you that yes, you must and you can. <laughs> no, I love it. Yes, 100%. And again, listeners, if you're struggling with whether or not you can, this is a great book to pick up to, to help you figure out that yes, you can. Um, so on that note, Erica, uh, if people want to, you know, work with Proteus, they want to find out more about you, they want to tune into your podcast, pick up a copy of the book, uh, what, what's the best way to do that? 
I think the easiest entry point is uh, my website, which is ericaanderson.com. And I'm pretty sure that'll be in the show notes. My mm-hmm. Both my names are spelled oddly. Uh, but um, if you go there, you'll see the podcast, you'll see the book, and you'll see a link to our Proteus-International site as well. So you can just walk through that door and find everything you like. Outstanding. And again, listeners, uh, besides the book, I really do uh, suggest that you add the Proteus Leader Show to your uh, to your subscription list. Uh, it, it's nice. One thing I love about it that uh, I just can't do because I can't talk that short <laughs> period of time, but it's 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 a nice it's a nice short commuter size podcast, which I really enjoy. Um, yes, thank you. In the last four or five months, we've really been focusing on change. The The latest podcast, which just went up yesterday, is with a wonderful colleague of mine, um, Tessa Tubbs, who has such wisdom about the human impact of change. And she talks about it, especially uh, with the pandemic, coming back from the pandemic into this hybrid workplace. So I think, and and as you said, Earl, there it's only about 15 minutes long. So I, I think it might be valuable for your listeners. All right. Well, no, I appreciate it. So listeners, you've got a a few items, a few action items here from this. Um, Erica, just thank you very much for being a guest on the Responsible Leadership Podcast and having the outstanding conversation that you had with me and my listeners. Oh, thank you so much. Your questions are wonderful and I love your innate curiosity. And this has just been a great conversation. So thank you. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that... I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast. Electric Cast.